Welcome back. And welcome to our storytelling conversation. This segment, as Amy mentioned, we call the backstories conversation about storytelling and sometimes about storytellers. And for our holiday show, we have a triple treat. Our conversation is with all three tellers, Amy and Kamisha and Nina. And let me just say right off um, for all of us, what a wonderful set of three stories. You three rocked. Nina, let's start with you. I know as uh, you've become very involved in visual storytelling, in particular, Pecha Kucha, which I probably mispronounced. And you organized the Bridgeport, Connecticut Pecha Kucha. And it seems to me that that's really quite different from say stories on the stage or what we do here at True Tales Live. So I wonder if you'd share with us what led you to visual storytelling and share a little bit about the differences between those kinds of uh, storytelling experiences. Well, I got introduced to uh, visual storytelling through a meetup group. This is a group of people that got together to attend cultural and art um, events. And someone said to me, we have this event going on in, in New Haven, Connecticut. I think you'll like it. Don't get put off by the word. It's actually, at the time she called it Pecha Kucha like you did, but it's actually pronounced Pechakacha. And she explained it to me and I go, oh, it just sounds really strange, but I trusted her and I went and I sat there at the event, my eyes were just wide. And um, she was staring at me and then during intermission, she asked me, would you ever do that? And I nodded yes. And uh, went home, looked up when the next event and the next event was in Maine. And I pitched a story to Bangor, Maine. And so I did my first Pachakacha story in Bangor, Maine. Now, as far as um, the differences between um, visual and moth style, uh, traditional storytelling, is that in visual storytelling, the image projects part of the story. So like, for example, I don't have to say I was wearing something red during the story, you're going to see that. And the, the visual could help add details to the, the story, it could help surprise the audience because I'm sometimes a little naughty and I put a visual in there that doesn't belong. And so it's like kind of the shocking value. And then um, uh, it just engages a wider a range of people because some people are very visual. And so there are, peop there are people from the MTV um, you know, generation and all, everybody gets very, very engaged. And um, sometimes I show pictures of myself, though I didn't have a camera for 30 years. And uh, so a lot of these images I source from public access ro uh, royalty free photos. Amy, you're up next. <clears throat> and if I may say so, in your dad's stories, you take on a serious, sometimes painful topic, and yet you do so with humor. And I think doing that with humor requires really a kind of artful balance. So do people sometimes take offense at your storytelling and what led you to make that kind of choice? Yeah, well, um... I would expect, you know, I have had some people say that like oof, dementia, that is too heavy to be joking around about that they don't really like that. And, and that's fine. And, you know, everyone 
processes and processes things differently. And I don't want to be too general, but as I said, I, I did grow up in a, in a half Irish family. And I would say that that is one of the Irish ways of dealing with adversity. So that's what I was brought up with. That is what we brought to bear to difficult things. Um, our way of lightening things, our way of making it, you know, what could be a hard life, um, bringing some joy to it. That making fun and, you know, bringing that kind of humor was what I was taught um, and what works for me. And obviously not in every situation. I think part of the beauty of what happened with my father was that he was a character and he laughed a lot. And he, you know, people say, oh, your father, would he appreciate, I told my father, I, you know, I was telling these stories while he was still alive. And I told him, I'm telling stories. He said, well, people should know about me. I'm a great guy. <laughs> you know, he had no, you know, I'd say, well, dad, can I tell about the one where you had the bladder control issue? Ah, sure, whatever. You know, he, it was, and it was also like, and the fact that he had so little shame was such a relief because there were so many moments that could have been, you know, just brutally painful and heavy. And he was like, eh, whatever, you know, he kind of had this and that for us was like a saving grace kind of piece of it. So, and I'm sure that not, you know, every culture, every person, family is different. And um, so for, for some folks, I'm sure it wouldn't work, but I, my experience is that for a lot of people, it's a relief to have these things talked about openly and with the kind of lightness um, that lets us us kind of engage with a hard topic that, you know, that, but that many of us deal with in one way or another. So yeah, great question. Thanks. Kamisha, you're up next. Um, and a question for you, which really uh, is designed for all, all of us. How do you go about designing a story that you're gonna tell? Do you have certain kinds of processes or are there certain design, storytelling design elements that you use? Um, any other kinds of aspects about how you, and how do you know when you've completed a story, when it's, when it's cooked? So just- uh, You know, I think uh, the first part of your question, how do I design a story? Um, I've learned a lot of that from other storytellers, you know, um, the feedback that I get in, in, in our workshops or other storytelling workshops really helps me shape a story um, because I may not always, I may be telling a story, but it may not have anything like any real structure to it. So I get a lot of help from other storytellers when I'm doing that. Like they give me suggestions, like, have you thought about this or, Maybe you should talk more about that. And that happened with this last story as well. Um, people wanted to really know what happened after I didn't sing karaoke. And, <laughs> and I didn't have that anywhere in my story until um, I got that feedback from everyone. So that's super helpful. Um, but I think for me, it's really important to just share stuff that people think about, but they're it gives a permission to know that other people mess up and have these anxieties. And I just think there's such value in, in sharing that sometimes. I mean, it, it's such a relief when I hear somebody else saying, oh, I hate singing too. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I'm not about myself in this. 
I think we probably have time for three more questions, one more round. So Nina, I know that you are involved in several other storytelling venues, not just True Tales Live. And I imagine that each of those is different in some ways. And does each different venue uh, affect or contribute to the way you process storytelling? Um, I'm the kind of person is you see what you get. <laughs> So um, I, I, tr I, I tried to match things up and I failed terribly at times. But the beauty about that is that people really got to know me. And because even though I might think it's a failure for picking a particular story for, for a particular venue, like one, one of the stories that I have to be watching out for is the no pants subway ride story, some, which you ride a New York City subway car in your underpants. And um, some audiences take better to that um, than, <laughs> than some others. And so, for example, um, I can do that story and more if it's a, um, a, a, in, a live venue that is in a bar or an eatery. Um, I also uh, do um, my edgier stories, um, an adults only show that actually airs once a month at 10 p.m., you know, at, at night. But actually, I made it my New Year's resolution um, this year. And this story is a part of that, is to have some children-friendly stories. And so this is one of my unusual stories that, that it is G-rated. So I try my best. I'm still learning how to um, match the venues. Um, but if anything, I, I love to do things in person, which I was able to do a few of those um, this year, uh, some outdoors, some with a lot of social distancing. So for me, I'm still a work in progress. I'm seven years into storytelling. I was 30 years a corporate chemist. And so I love the adventure. And when I'm not sure, I ask my ukulele class. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding you. And um, they don't always give me the right advice, but at least I, I know I'm not alone. Thank you. Amy, <clears throat> I know that you're also involved in drumming circles and dance, and you co-run a permaculture farm. Those things seem on the face of it fairly uh, removed from storytelling, but maybe not. So I wonder if you could comment on how do those or do those feed storytelling, the work you do in dance and drumming and farming? Well, I guess I see it all as sort of the fundamental ways we connect and have for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You know, we come together to tell stories to work together, to grow food, to dance. I mean, some of the oldest cave paintings are of dancing um, in groups. Um, but I think actually it's one of the ways I really came to storytelling was through activism. Um, that's really one of the primary passions of my life. And what I realized after many years is I, I thought if I brought people the right information that was all that was needed. And at a certain point, I realized that people don't change their minds because of information. They change their minds because of stories. And that's really what kind of shifted me, got me more and more interested in adding that to the, to the things that I was doing and the ways that I, I was, I really 
connecting through things like drumming and dancing and working in the fields together where everyone's sort of equal and contributing the same is, is I really love that. Storytelling is a little different because you have like one person up at the front for a while at least taking their turn and it's a little more anxiety producing for me, but, um, but I think it's powerful and I've had a lot of fun with it and I love hearing other people's stories. So, so to me, it's all, you know, that sort of those ancient ways that really we're used to connecting that really work for me and I just feel them deeply and I wouldn't want to be without them. Nisha, I know that storytelling you have said is really personal for you. So say a little bit more about how you got involved in storytelling and the ways in which it is personal for you, if you would. Sure, um, it is personal. Um, I, I have, um, I guess I really realized the value and the importance of storytelling um, through um, a person that I worked with in recovery. And um, I was actually not very mature about the conversation we were having when this person snapped me right out of it and said, you don't know who needs to hear that story. You don't know who in the universe, the universe is sending that story out because somebody needs to hear those words. And I, I was kind of taken aback. And, and then I realized how selfish, you know, I, I perceived it. it's completely wrong. And, um, and it really changed, it changed me. Um, but it also propelled me to look at stories completely in a different fashion. And, and I had to come full circle many years later when somebody repeated my own story back to me from Uganda. And it, it completely changed me. It completely changed, changed how I saw the, like uh, Amy mentioned, the communication tool. Um, just so powerful. And I, I think coming from an Irish background, you know, I come from an Irish Native American background. Storytelling is a huge part of our culture and of both sides. So yeah, it's, it's personal, <laughs> but also lovely. Amen to that. Well, thank you, each of you. This brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you, Nina and Kamisha and Amy for your stories, for our conversation, and for all each of you do to support and encourage authentic storytelling. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of our show. Thanks to our True Tales Live team whose names appear on the scroll. Keep up to date with True Tales Live, as Amy mentioned, through our website, our Facebook page, and through our e-newsletter, True Tales Times, which you can sign up for on our website. Our next show is Wait for it next year, as Amy said, Tuesday, January 25th. Our next workshop is next week, January 4th, 7 to 8, 30 p.m. And if you are thinking of telling the story, we strongly encourage you to attend a workshop. They're free. Zoom signups on our website. And also on our website are our themes for 2022. Take a look. We hope that one or more of those themes will inspire a story in you. Edited by John Lovering, our show tonight will be posted on PPM TV's YouTube channel, will be posted on SoundCloud as a podcast, 
and will be broadcast in Portsmouth on Channel 98. Tell your friends to look for the show and please encourage them to sign up for our newsletter because it's a great way to keep in touch. The writer Joan Didion died recently. In her The White Album, she wrote in part, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon in the suicide. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Joan Didion, she was 87. That's our program for tonight. Thanks to our tellers and our crew and you. My name is David Frainer. Good night. Thank you.